Hello and you're most welcome to episode 202 of the Game Pit Podcast. My name's Ronan, I'm your host today and this is a Picking Over the Bones episode in which we look at modern board games that have hit our table recently and give you our thoughts and a review of them and today I'm going to be going through five games and one expansion so I hope you have fun as you join me through this. First game on the list is Oros, O-R-O-S, a 2022 game for one to four players taking around 90 minutes. Designed by Brant Brinkerhoff and published by Esk, A-E-S-C, picked up now by Lucky Duck, a bit of a bigger publisher, and it's Brant's first game. The premise of Oros is that players are competitively going to be manipulating land tiles on a grid in order to build them up and then be able to build these places of worship in order to ultimately score the most points and win the game. Each player starts with their own little action selection board and a pool of workers. And on your turn, you're gonna be moving your workers around mostly on your action selection board in order to take one of the eight actions, or actually take three of the eight actions over the course of one round. And with four of these actions, you're gonna be interfering with the tiles on the board and manipulating what the world looks like. With three of them, there are three different levels of structure you can build once you've been able to create mountains on the board. And for one of them, you can study, which means you're either gonna create wisdom to improve your actions, or you're gonna allow yourself to put more people onto the board, more of your workers actually out of your worker pool and onto the board and able to go around and build and score for you. So in terms of interfering with the tiles, The map is player count dependent and also experience dependent. It's double-sided and you want to usually play with the smaller map to start with because it is possible to get yourself isolated and get caught in certain rough situations if you don't know, you're not used to the game. But the whole board works like a donut. It's supposed to be a sphere, but it's not exactly. And you can go off one end and come around the other one. In the course of choosing your actions, you can be able to slide a whole rows and columns around the place in order to change the relative position of tiles to each other. Once you've got tiles sort of lined up where you want them to be, you can also crash them into each other. Now tiles have got a value of how much land is on that particular tile, one, two, three, or four, or the most important one is mountains. And players are looking to manipulate the board into where they're trying to crash two level four pieces of land into each other with a particular action, and then that will form a mountain. Other than that, when you crash tiles into each other, they add their values together. So if I put a three and a two together, they'll create a four, which is the maximum level, and then another one. And from there, you're trying to work out where best you can get these mountains near to where your people are in order to build your places of worship in order to score the most points. The other way in which you're going to be manipulating how much land is on the board is there are volcanoes on the board and you can create volcanoes. You can also erupt volcanoes, whether the starting ones or player made, and they'll just create more land and you'll choose a direction that will go in and they will sort of top tiles up to get them to a certain level, but you'll still need to crash fours together in order to create the mountains. So I'll keep talking about how to create these mountains and why we want these mountains. Because three of the actions are nothing to do with actual moving the tiles. They're about you having a worker on a mountain and be able to build a particular, you can have a level one temple, which will just go straight on a mountain. To get a level two one, and they've all got different names, like temple, shrine, and something else. A level two one has to be built on top of someone else's level one. And then there's a level three building. That can only be built on top of someone else's level two. 
as much as you're trying to manipulate the board to get it so that it suits you, equally, what you can't do is sort of a mistake sometimes beginner players might do is try and sort of create your own land over in one part of the board because all you can then build is level ones. And you'd have to create a lot of mountains just yourself to be able to do that. It's a possible strategy because there are ways via studying. You can either put your workers onto the board or you can create wisdom. Or every time that you build one of these structures, you gain wisdom. And that allows you to increase the efficacy and the efficiency of your actions or increase how many victory points you're going to score for a particular type of building. When you increase all your actions to a certain level, you can unlock more workers, but your action selection board, because you're moving workers around to select actions, you need some gaps there to have some flexibility, and you're going to want to sometimes, if you unlock those workers, make sure they are out on the board. There's a funny thing where they can only appear on your temples, and it's possible that if your temples aren't in the right place to be near where the current building is going on, you're not going to be able to rush in and get building and someone else might beat you to it it's a game of kind of setting up the lands and then suddenly there's a rush for all the eligible spaces and then you set up the lands a little bit more and then there's a rush and it tends to go in sort of waves like that of when all there's eligible building space let's just use that as quickly as possible because vps are hard to come by now the wisdom thing the whole idea that you could upgrade your actions and become super flexible and great manipulating the board in theory sounds good but because victory points are hard to come by in almost all my games, everyone has just used their wisdom to bump up their VP score. Like I've built a lot of level two temples. I don't get that much wisdom in the course of the game. If I spend a lot of time studying and returning and studying and returning, I get behind the curve. So I tend to be spending all of my wisdom bumping up my, my score and then building as many of that sort of building as I can. Because like I said, it becomes a race. And once there's a certain number of buildings out, people move up this weird track which starts with sort of inter player order. And if you move one or two space up, if there's people in your way, you just jump right over them. That's another reason why you have to be involved in the mix and scoring points at the same rate as everyone else. Because if you get behind, if you get your one or two moves, you'll just move one or two spaces on this sort of track up. But if people are within a group and scoring at a similar rate and they try and move one or two, they'll fire right across the front of the queue and they'll keep using each other to hop forward. And like I say, get left behind on that. That can be quite punishing as well. There's quite a few things that are punishing in Auros that kind of force you almost to follow along with the groupthink of the particular game that you're playing and however your table is building it at the time. In terms of the flexibility of being able to build up this landmass the way you would like it to be and to sort of try wild things, they have all tended to sort of coagulate in the middle and people have wanted to put mountains near other mountains they're already on so it doesn't cost them a lot of movement to get across to start. And then because if you start something, if you don't have other people following you or if you're not there to, to build your level twos. They have to be level ones there first. You need to be near people, basically, which means that land just tends to mass in the middle. Although, because of the idea that it's this sphere or like kind of a funky donut, <laughs> there shouldn't be a middle. Everywhere is equidistant from everywhere. It's not exactly true, but it's, it's close enough to damn it. But still, tiles will coagulate in the centre of the board, I promise you. And all the mounds will come together. And the promise of this free shift in land maybe doesn't quite come through in the gameplay. And sometimes also, it's quite easy to see who's getting ahead and who has been left behind. There's nothing too much that's going to be unexpected that's going to happen. Those patterns form early. 
yeah, people can play well, and but maybe about halfway through, you really know who's in contention in Auras and who maybe has just dropped out a little bit. As a total package for me, it's a really good idea for a game, but it was never fully developed to bring through and shine the potential that was there from the thoughts that went into it. Each game becomes a bit too samey, the map becomes a bit too crowded in the central area. It's definitely interesting. It's certainly worth a play. It's worth seeing whether you get more out of it of this, this tightness and sameness and, and real sort of edging ahead slightly from everyone else. I was hoping for something slightly more creative and expansive from the ideas that were sold to me in the description and those actions which could be part of the game but end up not being part of the game because you're too busy trying to score points because the race is always on and, and you don't have enough time to do everything therefore you have to focus on scoring those points. So a decent game but not a sticker for me or us but certainly give it a go if you get a chance. I mentioned I was going to do an expansion and this is an expansion to one of the games that I've been banging on about so I will try and keep it fairly brief. This is Immortality, an expansion for June Imperium designed by Paul Denon and published by Dire Wolf. The previous first expansion was Rise of Ix. I thought it was amazing. I think it took a really very good game and turned it into a fantastic game which appeared in my top 100 and now would have gone further up in my top 100 if I were to redo it because I've continued to play it and it's continued to improve. Would Immortality reach those heights? Well, the first thing it does, I'm just going to run through what it does and I'll give you some thoughts on it, is that you take the June Desert Planet cards out of your start deck and you put these two experimentation cards in. And the experimentation cards give you starts off on the two main aspects that are new that this brings to June Imperium. First is you get a research action when you use it to place an agent. There is a new research track and every time that you use a research symbol, you move along the research track and it's branching and you get instant benefits. You also find as you get further up the track, you're going to be able to unlock further benefits on some of the new cards. So some of these new cards will come out and say, yeah, let's say it's an entry card. There's a few new ones going in the deck. You get three swords for this battle. If you're at a certain level of the research track, maybe you'll get two more swords. And if you've got right to the top of the research track, maybe you'll get two more swords. But also it gives you benefits all the way along. So that's just one more thing you can think about doing and driving and using some of those benefits to take you down different strategies. And that's one of the things that Immortality does, for good or for bad, it opens up slightly more paths for scoring points than you get with just the base game or the base game with X. Now I said it can help improve these new cards. Some cards go into the Imperium deck and they can include graft cards. They are cards that you can play with another card. In fact, you'd have to play them with another card when you're placing an agent and you get the benefits of both cards as you place. And also you can go to anywhere on either of the two cards, the locations they allow you to go to. And they allow you slightly more synergy and powers and allowing you to be slightly more mm, present during the agent placement phase. Doing slightly more, getting a slight edge, pushing yourself in a slight way so that you feel like you can do slightly more within that part of the game rather than sometimes waiting for your flop and doing all the extra hours at the bottom of the cards. There's also Tilaxu in this, the Tilaxu cards. Now, for these ones, there's just a market of two available and you can't buy them with your normal currency. You need to collect axolotl cubes. 
which is the other thing you can get on your experimentation cards which come into your deck. If you use them at the end of your turn when you do your reveal, you build up these cubes and then whenever you want to when you're buying cards, you can spend these cubes back out and there are other ways of getting them on the board and by cards and stuff. You spend them to, to buy these new cards in and again, they will tend to be linked into the research track. There's also something called the Bene Tilax track. <laughs> Bene Tilax, I don't know. I don't know, June. Benetilax track, something like that, in which when you advance on the research track, you can go up there. When you play these cards, you can go up there. There are ways of moving up this separate now house track. So it's very similar to the other four on the left-hand side of the base board. And as you go up there, you can get uh, entry cards. You can get spice if you're the first to go up there. And there's one or two points available again, as usual, on these influence tracks. So it's again a slight another way you can score points, possibly easing off the tightness of the base game, but giving you something else you can focus on. And these new cards that you need to spend these uh, axolotl cubes for tend to have slightly more out there powers and be a bit wackier and have you think in a slightly different ways. And certainly the whole immortality expansion, I would say, is designed around experienced players of the game. It's gonna bring you something different. I would play with Rise of X, with new players. With Immortality, I would hold it back until people have had a few games, I think, so that they could really get into the full scope of what it is making available. There's another new thing, which seems very simple. It's called the Family Atomics Token. I don't know why it's called that. But it's once per game, you can wipe the card market, the, the normal five card card market, and draw another five. It's difficult to build a very coherent deck in Junior Period. It's something that people have to get used to when they play it. They think you'll be able to build lots of synergies and I'm going after Fremen, I can buy all Fremen cards. Well, they may not come out. You do have to roll with the whole game sometimes. This gives you slightly more control on that and that once a game I can wipe it and go for it and it's not like it scores you a point if you don't use it. You may as well do it at some point. If you're getting in a bit and you're like, this doesn't quite suit me, or early on if you're like, I've got a load of money and there's nothing here for me to buy, or the opposite, you can do the wipe. And it actually is strangely satisfying and removes one of the, uh, the more annoying aspects of a lack of control when you're building your deck in June Imperium. For the whole lot, it is a very interesting expansion which veteran players, as I said, will get the most off. It doesn't water down the experience too much, but it certainly makes the game slightly less tight and slightly less cutthroat, with the benefit of giving you more things you can do and more ways to go, and being able to, although I said it's not always easy to make a current deck, because you've got this couple of other ways of getting cards and you can do the grafting, you do slightly feel that the deck building has become more important and that very clever deck building can be now rewarded. And you can do these, see the axolotl cubes, when you spend them for those cards, the Talaxa cards, you don't just want to grab any one because they won't suit certain styles of play. So you do want to sort of wait for the right one and go, that's suiting what I'm going to do. And then you can feel that, again, you're getting slightly more synergies going. So if you don't mind that there's slightly more ways to score points and you're looking for ways to get slightly more control, I think Immortality might be for you. It's not a must-have. Like, I very rarely say that about the expansion. Rise of X, I think, is a must-have. I think it's brilliant. But... If you've played Dune Imperium a lot, I think that you will get plenty out of Immortality, and certainly I'm happy to have got it, and I will add it every time I'm playing with players who've got a few games under their belt. 
Okay, the next game up is a solo only game from 2021 that's made a huge splash and you'll find has made its way over to game shops. It's Final Girl. It takes about 30 minutes to play. It is designed by Evan Derrick and AJ Porfirio and from Van Ryder Games. In Final Girl, you are within a horror film, or at least a horror film situation, and you are the final girl in the movie, the heroine, the hero of the movie, and you're going up against whichever big baddie it is. And it's a very interesting system in that it is mix and match system. You can choose a location in which you're going to find yourself, be it a, a hospital or a circus or at a, a camp or on a spaceship. You can choose the enemy who are all, you'll recognize them, a lot of them, from horror films. There are some interesting ones that aren't, but like the, you know, the evil nurse, uh, an alien, from alien a pig man uh, someone in like a hockey mask you get the idea so you're going to choose the location choose the baddie and then you're going to choose the girl themselves that you're going to be which will give you different sets of powers and different ways of when you, you power them up what they can do and some of them suit some locations better than other locations for the location itself what you get is a map a very simple map you get a set of items which can be found in that map and a set of events which will happen. And one will always happen at the beginning of the game, but then others may trigger depending. And every time you play with lots of these things, it just depends because each play is very varied. No matter that you can mix and match the different places, but each play, even if you play with the same girl, the same location and the same enemy, each play will feel varied of final goal. There's a lot going on. The location also gives you terror cards and you mix some of those terror cards with the terror cards of whichever enemy you've chosen. So they come with their own ones and they come with their own powers as well and their own minions possibly. And they will have their own way in which these terror cards will drive either something happening in the location, something happened with the enemy. And they will also take actions every turn after you've taken actions and they'll all be slightly different in exactly what they do. On the map, on varied setup, and again, so every location's got various setups, you will put out some victims. These victims, if they get caught by the enemy, then that's gonna power the enemy up, make them faster, make them do more damage, make them go on more of a rampage. If you manage to save them, so basically when you're moving through an area, if there are victims, you can just take two of them with you. If you get them to an exit space, as long as you're with them, they will exit, and as long as you're putting in the way, that is the way out, go, go out it. That will power you up slightly, and that's the way in which you'll flip your goal and unlock your power, and you'll become the, the super hero that you're meant to be. As well as being on the map, those exits you need to get the uh, the victims to, there are also search areas, and that's how you will unlock the items. And different locations deal with this in different ways, and you can have different things that come out that are not all helpful items within those decks, but a lot of them are helpful items that will somehow help you go in, and you're going to need that help. Because in the end, Final Goal is a hand management game. You're going to choose from a hand of action cards. Now, I'm going to tell you how they work, and then I'm going to tell you how you get the action cards. So you start with six, which cost zero, zero time, but you just start the game with them anyway. And you start with a certain amount of time you have in order to do things and also prepare for the next round. You choose one of your action cards to activate, and then you're going to roll dice. Now, the number of dice that you roll, trying to get successes, depends upon how high a something called the horror level is. Generally... The midpoint is you get to roll two dice. Fives and sixes are hits. You also can get, I believe it's threes and fours, you can throw two of your very limited action cards away in order to turn one of those into a hit and boost up. Why do you want to do that? Because most actions on them have got either two hits for a big success and you might gain time back sometimes. 
one hit, which is a sort of a success, but usually it costs you a bit of time, or a fail in which something bad is gonna happen and generally will also cost your time and your time will go down. And what these action cards are allowing you to do are basically to move around this map, to search those items, to do attacks when you're in with the enemy and you're in a game state in which you can damage them, because sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Some enemies have minions, some enemies are just minions. But uh, you, then you can sort of damage the minions and get them off the board, which maybe will allow them, well, make life easier for you, but maybe you'll have to kill the minions before you can even damage the body. It depends on the different scenarios. So I have to be a bit vague with certain things. And sometimes action cards will allow you to defend when the enemy is acting and you can use them and try and avoid some of the damage. Because if you take too much damage and die, you've lost. If the enemy takes too much damage and they die, they've lost. And that's basically how you're going to win and lose. You do have some mitigation cards, which will allow you to reroll dice here and there. But eventually you're going to come to the point of, okay, I've done the things I can do or want to do. I spent the action cards I want to. Maybe I want to keep one or two for later on. Who knows? And then hopefully you'll have some time left. Because there's an open market of action cards available and you're going to spend the time that you've got left on this round in order to purchase more cards and they will become your hand for next round but all the cards you use this round are not available like i said you start with six free ones so they will always constantly come back around into your hand but that might be a reason why you want to keep some back because they haven't been the right situation yet for that card or when you've got a lot of time, you might want to buy a very expensive card and then keep it for the exact right moment to do your big attack or to defend you and get you out of trouble or whatever it might be. And you're trying to read the situation all the time and make these decisions. After you've created your hand for the next turn, in effect, that's when the enemy is going to move and attack and you get a terror card and something's going to happen in the environment or the enemy's going to do something. Now, the concept of Final Girl and the mood that it creates is fantastic. This idea that you're stuck in a situation, you're trying to help people, the more people you can help, the more powerful you'll get, the more victims there are, the worse it is for you. The variety is incredible. And I'm not just talking about all the different movie sets you can buy to go with it. I think there's 10 or 12 or something like that, all with both a location and an enemy in there. Even within one set, you have different setups of victims. You have different terror cards, which are all going to be different and come out in a different order. You have different events that happen. The items are going to come out in different ways. And then you've got all this dice rolling as well. So no two games of Final Goal are ever going to go exactly the same way. In terms of components, the art is very good, but the components themselves that you play with are very minimalist. The victims are literally tiny little wooden discs on a small board. Your action cards don't really have any art on them. They're, they're very functional. The symbology is good. You'll know exactly what's going on. No complaints there. But it's not beautiful. Although, like I say, the bits of artwork that are around are cool and are evocative and will pull you in. The issues I have is that if you've picked up on that all the way through, yes, there's lots of variety. There's a whole lot of random. Most importantly, taking actions can be painful because it's not easy you don't have a big hand of cards you don't have a lot of agency within this game you're not super powerful you are just one more victim who's trying to hold on and i get the idea of that and i get the idea of it being a tight system and that all on board with it's the rolling of the dice so every time i try and do anything i have to roll these dice and if they don't come my way i might set my hand up to move search and then get out of the way if I fail those rolls, if I roll too many ones or twos, I just can't do it. 
And then the game is happening around me. And we go to the enemy's turn, and they always do what they want to do. They have a set set of actions, and a terror card will come out, and they'll be and they'll back to me. You know, two bad rounds of rolling, you're behind the curve, and getting behind the curve is punishing. That horror level I spoke about, if too many bad things happen and the horror level pushes up, then instead of rolling two dice for each action, I could be rolling one. And now the best results aren't even available to me. And a third of the time, unless I can do something else, that's when I can actually do my action. So when things start to tip in Final Goal, they've gone. It's over. It's out of here. So you're constantly clawing and hoping that things go your way because there's other stuff that goes on. The events, you start with an event and it can be like incredible. At one time we found a golf cart and we could drive around this golf cart and it, we can mow down enemies in it, but and also we could pick up victims and move quicker than normal. And every turn we knew we could move, that gave us so much like, oh, we can do this, great, we can actually get things done. But another time an event might be, this happens, that happens, three victims are dead and your enemies boosted up three straight away before you started and you haven't got anything. And you're like, oh, they're quicker. They're going to get to me quicker. There's nothing I can do. And it does feel like that. And I definitely have a lack of control. Victims can panic, which is a dice roll to see which way they go. The terror cards can come out in any order. While that's going on, and I think chaos going on around you is no bad thing thematically, it is down to the lack of agency and the worse I do, the worse chance I have, less control I have, the more it's going out, it just becomes not fun. I just feel like, almost feel like after 10 minutes, if I haven't made a great start, I may as well stop because I'm just going to suffer for 15 or 20 minutes and end up losing. And I start to get slightly annoyed with the game. Then I like the idea of it and I get it out again. And then I go through this dice fest and this random stuff again. And I'm like, oh, this game is it's irritating because it does so much stuff well. So that's the only way you can get irritated with the game if you're invested in it. But then it lets me down too often. If you're here for Final Goal, you're here for atmosphere and you're here for story moments when it coheres and final interesting things happen. The baddie design, the enemy design is very interesting and some of the things are so creative in what they can do and how they do it and the names of their tarot cards and how that corresponds to what actually happens mechanically, all very good, all very cool. But the enemies are having the most fun. <laughs> They're able to do something every turn. They're affecting the game. They are doing their plot. I'm just here to watch it and I might get lucky and I might not. And that's not a great feeling as a player. For me, Final Girl has ended up being style over substance and it's not one that I'm going to keep. Now, I'm denied about covering the next game. It's Arrow of Need, 2022, one to four player game. Takes around 60 to 90 minutes to play from the Saddler Brothers and from Blacklist Games. Now, the Saddler Brothers have moved on and don't design games anymore rumoured possibly to be because of the interactions they had with Blacklist Games, who were a publisher who took over their their system, the system they designed a lot of games under the same system as Hour of Need, and that's Alter Quest and uh, I think Contra, whether it ever came out or not, Streets of Justice. So Blacklist Games is a company that I did a quick look to see what I... And there probably is way more information than I was able to find quickly on Reddit and what have you and Google searches, but something like seven undelivered projects on Blacklist when they would seem to have gone under sometime in the last six months or so. Um, so lots of people have got money either through a Kickstarter or their own pre-order system and have never seen their games. So I got Hour of Need delivered. It's not going to be, I think, available ever again. But I thought... I've been talking about it and I've been talking about looking forward to it for so long 
that I thought I would talk through my experience of it, but I'm sorry if you've lost money to Blacklist and uh, this is not happy listening for you. My apologies that happened. Hopefully, I know that some of these games are getting picked up by other publishers, whether they'll be delivered to original backers or not. I don't know anything about it, to be honest with you. But maybe, maybe I have need will get picked up. So if this interests you, possibly it will be available. And there are copies around, but I think they're going for, for you know, a fair old price. Okay. Hour of Need itself, getting to the actual game. It's for one to four heroes in what's called the Saga Comics world that they've created for this Hour of Need. It's cooperative, and as ever, whenever you've got a hero game that is in a world of the making of, of the game makers, it's not Marvel, it's not DC, it's not Image, whatever, then it can be a tough sell. And you're looking at these, and what makes me laugh is whenever you look at these, they always seem cliched. Try and design a truly original but decent non-corny superhero. I think it's pretty tough, especially trying to do it within a game system anyway. How's it work? Each of these heroes have got a deck of their own cards, and you just get that deck. That's what that hero has, and they have their own powers available to them. Each scenario is played out on a hex grid map. And that hex grid map has points of interest where things are going to happen, or where you can be able to go in and go off to the side panels where the main plot that the villain is trying to achieve is going on. There's going to be spots for bystanders, and the map is always linked to a particular plot, be it a bank heist, a robbery in a library, or stuff going on illicitly at the docks, or whatever it may be more in each expansion what have you but you get to choose which villain you use for which scenario now the base game itself only came with four heroes two villains and four scenarios if you want lots of variety there were there were kickstarter bonuses that came with that there were three expansions available i have added the kickstarter sort of bonuses but i haven't played with the expansions i'm talking about thinking about doing further down the line so we'll talk about them so i'm just going to talk about the base game mostly here and stick to content that was available if you could just buy the the basic box itself at the beginning of the of the plot each hero gets a problem to solve that problem is going to be linked to one of the four locations and you need to go to that location and then you're going to be rolling dice to solve. Now, almost everything the heroes do in this game means they're going to move somewhere and then they're going to roll dice to solve or attack. They get two actions each turn and you can use them by playing cards or just by taking standard actions and the cards will sort of boost you, but they'll generally either boost your colleagues or yourself in a way of giving them more cards allowing them to move further or allowing them to roll more dice for their solver attack. And that is the, all the mechanisms that are going on. You've got things like the hero stride can move faster because they're the fast hero, but it's still within this sort of limited set of mechanisms that the heroes can do. You've got micro guy, you can switch modes and become better. He's like Ant-Man sort of thing. He can be better at solving or he can be better at attacking depending on what mode you choose to be in. But again, all within sort of this, you move and you solve or you attack. Meanwhile... Each turn, the plot is unfolding. Obstacles will appear, which will appear in different areas, which means that the heroes will be distracted from doing their main problem and uncovering the villain, because the villain's not in the game at the beginning. Although they are, what they're doing, their machinations are visible, and you can see that every turn they're progressing and they're getting closer to achieving what they want to achieve. One of the funny things is that when you first start playing, because the game system has been set up to allow every villain, every hero to be in each plot and for trigger words on cards to trigger no matter what the plot is, it's hard to know what's going on and how you can influence what the game is doing. And that's one of the things which you feel a bit lost when you first start playing Hour of Need because you're like, okay, I can't touch the villain. I've got to do these little things. I get that bit. 
what's going on there and then as the plot develops it's not always clear to you how you can slow it down until it becomes clear until you flip a certain card you do your problems for example they appear you can have like nemesis appear or a particular bystander appear or whatever it might be so every time you do your problem it, something unexpected happened the first time you play it anyway and then you've got something else to deal with and then it does unveil the the villain and sometimes still you don't know how to stop what's going on until you sort of go somewhere and go i'm going to try this and then a card will flip and you go oh Okay, so if I do this, I can start slowing down what they're doing because this game felt like it was running away from me. And there is certainly a way in which you have to learn each of these plots before you really feel like you're making informed decisions. Before that, you just feel like you're running around solving, running around attacking. You still feel like that once you know what's going on, but with slightly more purpose to where you're going and how you're choosing and what you're prioritising. Now, when the villain does become out and they then become attackable, and you're able to go to wherever they are and they'll be in one of these four locations generally marching their way across the board and you'll be able to go there and attack them every time you attack them though they'll have a counter attack back at you because it comes something called the final showdown and you have to be aware that you really have to be tooled up for this because the game really ramps up a difficulty once you start trying to attack the villain themselves they will attack back they will do bad things they'll push you around the place and there can be a certain point in which the game has gone too far before you unlock the villain and you realise at that point of we're not powerful enough, we don't have enough time in order to take this villain down. The villains feel powerful. The villains feel like they're going to get on with what they're doing, whatever that may be. Let's go with the basic scenario. They are going to get on with robbing the gold bars out of the bank and then they're going to move them down to the train station and they're going to load them onto the train they've hijacked. And that is going to happen. If you don't do anything, that's going to happen. If you don't interfere early enough it can have got beyond your control and you don't have enough time to get it back under control. And this is a game you can lose before you've actually lost it. And that feeling can dawn on you. I actually found that with more players, the less control you feel you had and the more it can run away from you because almost each player's turn has to go very well. Otherwise, once something starts slipping, because there are so many threats and problems going on, you haven't got time to scramble it back while all the other things go on. I feel like that playing with maybe two heroes see with two heroes the co-op is lessened and some of the heroes feel less valuable like guys helps everyone move and draw cards and stuff you've only got two heroes he doesn't feel very good but playing with more heroes each hero has less of an impact so I found the player count quite hard to judge the plots the villains the world is all interesting the way it's interlocked the way it's thematic the way that when you solve a problem it turns over it becomes another problem within the story They've designed each individual plot very, very well so that you feel like this particular little map I'm in is a coherent world that works. How I interact with it is just a bit dull. And one of the red flags for me is that straight away, one of the bonuses is that, well, I think it's a Kickstarter stretch goal or wherever, is that the villains can be played as heroes. I don't know, this might be a personal thing. Whenever I see that in a game, I feel like the designers liked those characters more than the characters I'm playing with. And they had more fun designing them and they had more fun thinking about what they could do. There's kind of generally more of a design space for a baddie and <laughs> they were able to stretch and they fell in love with those characters more than, the, like I say, what I'm doing, which is moving, attacking, moving, solving, rolling dice, Similar to Final Girl, if the dice roll well for you, then great. It's actually quite a cool system. There is an exploding system, 
and also a system of getting focus. And you can use focus to trigger certain powers. You can use focus to turn yourself over to either, it's not exactly power yourself up. Sometimes it's like with micro guy, you can change the focus of what you're good at and what you're bad at. What you also you can spend focus to improve your dice roll sometimes. And it's got an exploding system where there's a bang. And if you bang, you bang, you bang, you bang. And you don't know the upper limit of how many successes you get. Also, most of the dice faces, they've got successes on them. So it's much less frustrating the final goal where most of them don't have successes on. And you feel like, oh, this is difficult. Or in an hour of need, you almost always succeed to some degree. So that is more satisfying and feels more hero-like although you're still sort of a bit reliant on rolling dice. There are also clue cards you can get during the course by doing something well, and the clue cards will either give you a little power you can do, a little boost, or you can add dice to a roll, and you can save them up for the final showdown, become more powerful. But sometimes you might need them to stop the game from that cascade and go, geez, I need to cut in here. and stop this all running away and try and get it back under control. So while I said the game can get away from you, the more you know it, and I guess the better you become at it, you can influence that, but you'd need to sort of know exactly what's going on and what the rhythm of the plot should be and where we should be by the time this is happening within the story. Are we like, are we falling behind? Are we doing well? The more you play it, the more you can judge that. I've got more to explore in Hour of Need. I think that I'm going to play it no more than two players anymore, which, like I say, cuts out certain heroes a little bit, but there we go. It's on a balance, and living that hero life needs to become a bit more interesting for Aravni to stick around, but it's just done enough for me to keep playing it and try those expansions, and I think I might report back in once I've added in some of those to see if the expansion heroes were a bit more interesting and I start getting more out of it. Currently, I love the world system, I love the plot system, just give me slightly more to do in there. Okay. Next game is Gold West. It's a 2015 game that is being reprinted with Vincent Dutre uh, artwork. Coming out, I think, it's this year or next. Anyway, two to four players. Takes 60 minutes to play. J. Alex Kevin. It was originally from Tasty Minstrel Games. The reprint is coming from Trick or Treat. It's a Euro in which you're trying to score the most points. Each of the players is a prospector, collecting resources and building camps on a hex board. In building these camps, you're going to be claiming resources and you're going to use those resources to build more camps on the board, to collect more resources in order to fulfill contracts to score points, to sell, to grab end game scoring from what's called Boomtown tiles. And you're trying to do all of this better than your competitors. The first thing you do on the turn is that you're going to pick up resources from one of the boxes along the sides so in your board and you decide where these resources have gone, you'll find out how later in the turn. But you're gonna pick it up and say it's in your second box along. You pick all the resources up in it and you drop one off in each succeeding box until you're left with some. And you choose which one to drop in each box, load in those boxes to be picked up later on on a subsequent turn. And you'll be left with some resources. Now there are five different times, three of them are metallic, there's gold, silver, copper, and then there's wood and stone. In order to have a presence on the board, this is the next thing you have to do. You must have a wood or a stone. If you have both, you can build a super presence on the board, a settlement. But as long as you've got one of them, you choose an available hex, and it'll show you what resources it's gonna give you. And they're only available if they're in the beginning set or they're adjacent to a hex that someone else has already chosen and unlocked the ones around it. And you take what resources are on there. And this is when you choose what box to drop them into. Now, the further away the box that you drop them into, the more points you'll score at that point, 
but you've got to somehow in this sort of Mancala mechanism work out how you're going to get those resources to the point where you drop one off, drop one off, okay, these are available to me. And in doing that, you're setting yourself up and you're judging what resources I need each turn and how I'm going to use them. So let's talk about how you use them. I was talking about these camps and these settlements. If you've got a wood or a stone, you put a camp down. That gives you, you're always going to get the resources available to you. Don't worry about that. But that gives you one presence in that terrain and there's various terrains on the board. If you have a wood and a stone, you can build a settlement. It gives you two presence in that terrain. Why do you care about that? Because whoever's got the most presence in a terrain at the end of the game is going to score some points. There's like an area majority thing going on here. Equally, if you cannot you still get resources from the board. If you haven't got wood or stone, you still get resources from the board, but your camp goes into a thing that's gonna cost you points at the end of the game. Whoever's got the most pieces within that, of, uh, I think it's called looting, then uh, they're gonna lose the most points. So you don't wanna have the most in there in the game. You don't want any in there if you can avoid it, but sometimes it's unavoidable. So you've used your wood and stone. There's no point in having more than one of each. You're then gonna be left hopefully with some metallic resources and certainly in some terms you will be. So then I was talking about what can you do with these metallic resources? Well. Kind of the most obvious point scoring are these contracts. The more metal that they want in one go, the more points they'll give you, but you're gonna to have to manipulate that Mancala system and build up resources over multiple turns because you never get more than three resources in one turn and build them all up to all be in the same box to pick up, distribute, and then have enough left. So say it wants three gold and two silver, that's gonna take you a little bit of planning over the course of this game. And depending on player count, you only have 10 or 12 rounds. So it's all about thinking ahead, getting resources, lining up your own little Mancala, and then springing at the right point before anyone else has grabbed the contract that you're after and saying, right, there's my three gold, there's my two silver, I'll score that load of points. Luckily, if you can't use them for contracts and you haven't timed it exactly right and got the exact ones or someone's beaten you to contract, there are other things you can do. There's a little grid system that tells you what metal you need to spend in order to put a thing in and say, I'm claiming this end game scoring. And there'll be a few points for doing something during the course of the game. There's multiple tiles there. And you look at them in the game and say, okay, cool. That's an extra point for every contract I've done. Or uh, if I've got a majority in a certain type of terrain, I get extra, wherever it may be. Other metals you've got, you can just sell. And there's sort of a, a track of those. And whoever sells and gets to a certain point in the track is going to score more points than those that come behind. But you'll always be able to score some points, but it's less efficient than getting the contracts. But it's never completely useless to have metal. And it is much more about the timing and the management of getting them in the right chunks. Or, right, if I decide I'm going to race up the silver track, then I'm just going to areas where I've got silver. While I'm considering that majority of territory scoring at the end of the game, and also considering at the end of the game that I'm going to get one point for each of my camps or settlements in a contiguous area on the board while the other players are trying to stitch that up and take it. And there's a few things to think about, but it's very quick. And I don't know how much sense that just made to you about the game because it's hard to explain, but easy to play. Because once you've done it and you picked it up, there's just this timing thing to it. It's just the timing is slightly off for an explanation. So each turn I pick up all the resources from a box, drop them off, and then I use them. I build a camp, or don't. I take resources either way, and then I spend my metal. And that's my turn done. And it flows very quickly around the table and very smoothly. And it's a very nice playing game which rewards good play and rewards good strategy and is interactive. And you have to be aware, what are the people going for? What resource are they building up? Are they looking for that contract? Are they going up along the copper track? What, what, what's everyone else up to around here? But why you can mess with each other, you can never really scupper anyone because there's always good stuff to do. For me, Gold West, it's tricky, it's fun, it's quick playing, it's smooth. 
the only thing that's meant that I haven't kept it in my collection, and I'll be very happy to play it, is that it's a little bit samey. A little bit. The only thing that really changes are the contracts, but they're always going to be some mix of metal, or the Boomtown tiles, the ones that you can pay metal to take for endgame scoring, and they don't score that many points. So having played it quite a few times within a couple of months, I say, I like Gold West. If anyone says to me, do you want a game of Gold West? I'm going to say yes. Is Gold West worth playing? Yes. Would I like to play it every month or two? No. So a good game, well worth a reprint, definitely worth your time for a look and a play, just not an absolute classic for me, but one I'll be happy to revisit every few months. If someone pulled it up, actually it'd be a smile on my face. I'll be like, yeah, I'd like to play Gold West. It's a very good, fun, quick, enjoyable game. Okay, I'm going to end up with a two-player game from last year, 2022. It's 30 minutes long, and it's called Splendor Duel by Marc-Andre and Bruno Catala, and from Space Cowboys. And it is obviously a two-player version of the gateway. I think we can call it a classic now, maybe. Splendor. In Splendor Jewel, there is a grid of gems of different colours available. And there's a bunch of cards on offer of three different levels. And in order to buy these cards, you have to pay gems. And you get those gems by drafting them from this grid. And you can draft up to three gems in a line from the grid. Although you cannot take any gold when you're drafting. And gold is a wild gem. If you want to get gold on your turn, instead of drafting those three gems, you would take one gold put it into your own little reserve, and then you can reserve a card. You have a maximum of three cards reserved. The cards come in different colors, and they come with different costs, and they have different effects on them when you take them that we're gonna go through. You can reserve a card that's available in display, or you can draw three and keep one and put the other two on the bottom of the deck. You could, instead of doing those things to get gems, you can just purchase a card. So a card will tell you, this is how many I need, two reds, two blues, and a pearl, let's say. And you pay those back in, and they go into a bag, they don't go back on the grid and then you take that gem. Let's say that you already have two red gem cards and this card has got a two red, two blue and a pearl. You don't have to pay those two reds because the cards you've collected already will give you a discount of further cards which require the same color. And that's sort of the part, very similar to Splendor, where you burn up a little engine and cards get slightly cheaper and more obtainable to you and you can start going for the bigger ones once you've built up this little bit of a, uh, an economy, if you like, beforehand now obviously that board is going to get stripped of gems as you go through you can only have a maximum of 10 at the end of your turn but they can also go into the bag if you wish to get gems there's not enough available on the board for you you can choose before your turn to refill the board problem is your opposition is going to get one of these scrolls called a privilege for them to spend also if when I'm drafting from the board, I either take two pearls, there's only two in the game, pearls are used for a lot of the more valuable cards, or three of the same colour, then equally, my opposition is going to get a privilege. There are symbols on the cards that you take, which will allow you to do different things. For example, they'll take, take another turn immediately. Some of them are, are wild colour to add to your collection. Some of you they take a gem of the same colour, or steal a gem or a privilege or get a privilege. Some of them have got crowns on them. When you get three crowns, you get to take a card for a special power. When you get six crowns, you get to take a card for special power. When you get 10 crowns, you win the game. So that's one of the ways in which you win the game. The other ways are to have 10 cards of the same color or to score 20 points. And some gems have got points on them and they're varying. It depends on how hard they are to get. And that's one of the decisions you're making as to which gems I'm going for. 
Does it give me an extra turn? Does it let me steal a gem? Does it get me a privilege? Is it my seventh red, so I'm going for ten reds? Is it another crown, so I could go for the crown conditions? And as you think a bit, there's a little bit of decision-making about how I'm going to build my engine and what I'm going for here. Now, I've mentioned privileges loads and loads and loads. Why am I going on about them? A privilege allows you on your turn to take one gem off the board, and that doesn't have to be your turn. You can still purchase and do whatever you want to do on that turn. Why? It doesn't seem like much. Why, why would you not want to refill and give the other person a privilege and a benefit? The reason why Splendid Jewel is absolutely vicious, or at least it is in this house, and you don't want to give your opponent anything because you're looking at a limited market of cards, a very limited set of gems. There's only a couple of golds, there's only a couple of pearls you need. There's very few of each of the colours, and it is all as much about building your engine as about denying that other person what they want. And if you give them privilege and they've got ability, straight away you just go, that's the blue I need, I'll take it. Before you can interfere, oh, it will drive you absolutely crazy. You never want to refill that board. You never want to refill because you're giving them the privilege and you're giving them more choice to choose from and that proves they can take another gem and they can start messing up with what you want to do. They might see that you're trying to get to a certain number of by collecting reds. They'll just take the ones around the reds. So if you take them, because you can only take them in a line if there's, the gems are contiguous, they can start messing up your plans like that. You can really scupper each other in this and you can probably hear me laughing about it because I really like that. The whole sort of stealing and gem deprivation and that sort of gathering momentum in your own way, but trying to stop the other person because you're both getting better, but it's all about who's getting better quicker and who's going towards it. And what are you going for? Are you going for crowns? Maybe I'll just reserve all the crown cards that are able because the crowns aren't on every card. And I'll try and scupper you that way, but then maybe what I really want to have in my hand is the card that lets me steal the gem. So I build it at the right time, steal that gem off you, discover your plan, and allows me to do what I want to do. And there's just, within these little mechanisms, little bonuses you can get, because it's so zero sum, and you're so right up against each other, it can really make a big difference, and I like it, because you can be really, really mean to each other. Splendor itself, I liked it well enough. I think actually it's a great gateway game for people who are brand new to the hobby and get them this idea of you can build an engine and synergies and getting your own thing going and getting gradually better. I know it's not universally loved. I think it's a decent game. I really do. I heard good things about Splendor Jewel. I wasn't that excited by it, but I kept hearing good things and I got it and I love it. It's so vicious. It's so smooth. It's so quick. You can see directly what people are doing is their intention of your opponent that you're really trying to read and how it is they're trying to scupper you and what you can do to avoid it. And there's lots of moaning and shouting and finger pointing. And in the end, someone wins and you demand a rematch because that wasn't fair because it didn't go exactly your way. So Splendid Jewel for me, a real winner. I liked it a lot. Okay. And that's the five games of one expansion you were promised. Thank you very much for joining me on the Game Pit Podcast. It's been my pleasure to chat to you for this hour or so. We are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Head to dicetower.com for all the gaming goodness you could ever wish for. If you want to contact us, it's the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. Check out our Guild and Board Game Geek. Check us out on social medias. And we will catch you next time on the Game Pit. Music by E. Aaron.